Hello and welcome to Ollie and Sam's Medical Podcasts. This is a new series of podcasts to be presented by myself and my colleague Sam Thanabadu. Our aim is to bring you a short podcast each week on a common medical condition which you would expect to come across both on the wards and in the emergency department. It is designed by doctors for doctors or medical students and covers the key points you need to know about common conditions. These podcasts can also serve as an aid to exam revision. Our topic for this week is hypothyroidism. This podcast will guide you through a definition of hypothyroidism, some basic endocrinology, causes of primary and secondary hypothyroidism, the features of hypothyroidism and myoxidema coma, and finally the treatment options for patients. Hypothyroidism is a common chronic condition that you can expect to encounter in patients. Statistics for 2006 indicate that there are about 1.6 million people in the UK taking long-term thyroid replacement. Although most of the time patients you will see will already be receiving treatment, you should be aware of both the etiology and the symptoms patients will present with in the acute setting. So hypothyroidism is a syndrome that results from a deficiency of thyroid hormones. It can occur at any age, although most patients present upward of the age of 40, and it is more prevalent in women than in men, with a ratio of approximately 6 to 1. Hypothyroidism can be classified into primary hypothyroidism, where there is a deficiency in the production of hormones by the thyroid itself, or secondary hypothyroidism, which results from hypothalamic or pituitary disease. It is therefore worth revisiting some basic endocrinology. Thyroid-releasing hormone, or TRH, is secreted by the hypothalamus, which results in the production of thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, from the anterior pituitary gland. In turn, TSH leads to the stimulation of the thyroid gland and the release of the thyroxines T4 and T3. The thyroid gland produces mostly T4, which is subsequently converted in peripheral tissues, especially the liver, muscle and kidneys, to T3, which is by far the more active of the two thyroxine hormones. The vast majority of T4 and T3 can be found bound to thyroxine binding globulin, or TBG, thyroxine binding prealbumin, or TBPA, and albumin within the blood. However, it is the unbound thyroxines which are the active hormones found in the body and which can gain entry into our cells. So let us focus on primary hypothyroidism first, which is responsible for 95% of cases of hypothyroidism overall. Remember, this is disease resulting from the underproduction of hormones from the thyroid itself, which on blood tests will show low levels of T4, but raised levels of TSH. A patient with low T4 and TSH levels above 10 milliunits per litre are defined as having overt hypothyroidism. We should mention at this stage that another form of hypothyroidism exists in which patients have normal levels of T4 but marginally raised levels of TSH between 5 and 10 milliunits per litre. These patients are said to have subclinical or mild hypothyroidism and are mostly asymptomatic. Subclinical hypothyroidism should be confirmed by a repeated thyroid function test approximately three to six months after the original test was done, and this will be discussed later. Now let us concentrate on some of the common causes of primary hypothyroidism. These can be separated into acquired and congenital, and we shall tackle acquired causes first of all. The most common acquired and overall cause of primary hypothyroidism in the developed world 
is atrophic or autoimmune hypothyroidism. This is a condition associated with antithyroid autoantibodies, which leads to atrophy and fibrosis of the thyroid gland. It is more prevalent in women and is associated with other autoimmune disorders, such as vitiligo and pernicious anemia. Chronic autoimmune thyroiditis, otherwise known as Hashimoto's thyroiditis, is another common cause of acquired primary hypothyroidism, in which the body's own T-cells attack the thyroid gland. Autoantithyroid globulin antibodies are found to be raised in 90% of cases, and antiperoxidase antibodies are raised in approximately 70% of cases, often in very high concentrations. These autoantibodies result in atrophy of the gland, with the subsequent regeneration resulting in a firm, rubbery goiter, which may become evident on examining the patient. Patients with Hashimoto's often experience a toxic hypothyroid phase prior to developing hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism may also occur postpartum, with the mean onset being approximately 19 weeks after delivery. Patients suffering from postpartum disease stand a good chance of returning to a euthyroid state within one year. Drugs can also be responsible for acquired primary hypothyroidism, with the prime culprits being lithium and amiodarone. 50% of patients taking lithium would develop a goiter, and approximately 20% would develop symptomatic hypothyroidism, a figure which is similar for those being treated with amiodarone. Interferon and some anti-epileptic medications may also cause hypothyroidism. Acquired primary hypothyroidism may also result from iatrogenic causes following destructive radioiodide ablation or surgical thyroidectomy as part of treatment for hypothyroidism or thyroid cancer. Worldwide, however, iodine deficiency from an insufficient diet is probably the most common cause of acquired primary hypothyroidism and this often presents with a very large goiter. Now let us turn our attention to congenital causes of hypothyroidism, which affect 1 in 3,500 to 4,000 births. This is important as congenital hypothyroidism is the most treatable cause of mental retardation in the world and will lead to neurodevelopmental delay if left untreated. Testing is done for all newborns in the UK on day 5 of life using the heel prick test. There are three main causes of congenital hypothyroidism. These are iodine deficiency, defective thyroid metabolism, also known as dishormonogenesis, and hypothyroidism resulting from anatomical defects of the gland itself. Now we have dealt with primary hypothyroidism, let's now briefly mention the etiology behind secondary hypothyroidism. Remember, this is hypothyroidism resulting from underproduction of thyroid hormones due to deficient TSH stimulation from the anterior pituitary gland. This will lead to low or low normal levels of TSH and a reduced level of T4. Secondary hypothyroidism is uncommon and can be caused either by damage to the anterior pituitary gland, for instance resulting from a pituitary adenoma or following surgery or brain radiation, or from damage to the hypothalamus, usually resulting from tumours impinging upon it. Suspicion of secondary hypothyroidism requires referral to an endocrinologist for additional pituitary function testing. These will include testing for prolactin, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, adrenocorticotrophic hormone and cortisol levels. Features of hypothyroidism are many. The most frequently reported symptoms include tiredness or malaise, depression, weight gain, cold intolerance, dry coarse skin, 
myalgia, constipation and irregular periods or amenorrhea. Examination should be done systematically and start with the patient's hands. You should be looking for any evidence of vitiligo whilst the pulse may reveal a resting bradycardia. Looking at the patient's general appearance, you may note a puffy face with the loss of the outer third of the eyebrows or general hair loss and dry skin. You should inspect, palpate, percuss and auscultate for any evidence of a thyroid goiter. Auscultation of the chest may also reveal the presence of pleural effusions and a focused neurological examination may reveal slow relaxing reflexes. As mentioned earlier, TSH and T4 form the basis of diagnosing hypothyroidism, but other blood tests may also reveal hyponatremia, a normocytic anemia and raised cholesterol. Thyroid peroxidase antibodies are useful in the diagnosis of autoimmune thyroid disease, but not diagnostic of it. Thyroid peroxidase antibodies can be found in many apparently healthy individuals and their appearance usually precedes the development of thyroid disorders in general. Thyroid peroxidase antibodies are also useful in assessing risk of developing hypothyroidism in patients on medications such as interferon, amiodarone and lithium. British guidelines indicate that thyroglobulin antibodies need not be tested for if thyroid peroxidase antibodies are found to be present. Their measurement is indicated in differentiated thyroid cancer to determine possible interference from these antibodies in immunoassays for thyroglobulin. Measurements of thyroglobulin antibodies are also indicated as a prognostic indicator in thyroid cancer. Finally, we come to the treatment options for hypothyroidism, which involve the administration of levothyroxine. For patients with overt hypothyroidism, studies support the initiation of full replacement doses of thyroxine, which equate to 100 micrograms for a female and 125 for a male, as opposed to titrating up from a lower dose to achieve these levels. Exceptions to this rule include patients with a history of ischemic heart disease and those over the age of 60. In treating subclinical hypothyroidism, this should only be done after a blood test for TSH and thyroid peroxidase antibodies is done three months after the initial blood test which revealed abnormal thyroid function. If patients' symptoms are consistent with hypothyroidism and TSH levels are found to be persistently high, then a trial of levothyroxine should be commenced for three to six months. In all instances, all patients should have repeated blood tests and be reviewed at 8 to 12 weeks after initiating treatment with levothyroxine. Treatment aims to keep TSH levels within a range of 0.4 to 2.5 milliunits per litre and doses of levothyroxine should be titrated to achieve this. You should also be aware of the drugs which can interfere with thyroxine therapy. Principally and most commonly, these are ferrosulfate, phenytoin, carbamazepine, rifampicin and phenobarbital. Before leaving the topic of hypothyroidism, it is worth mentioning one extreme and potentially fatal presentation of the condition. This is myoxidema coma. This occurs either in patients with severe untreated hypothyroidism or in patients with decompensated hypothyroidism resulting from intercurrent illness or a precipitating event. The main precipitant behind an episode of myoxidema coma is infection, which presents without fever or tachycardia. Infection is responsible for one-third of cases, with the usual sources being either respiratory or urinary. Other significant precipitants include stroke, 
congestive cardiac failure, gastrointestinal bleeding, exposure to extreme cold, or drugs such as lithium and amiodarone. Clinical features of myoxidema coma include a decreased conscious level, hypothermia, bradycardia, hypoventilation, hyponatremia, and hypoglycemia. As a result, myoxidema coma carries a high mortality and requires immediate treatment. This comes in the form of intravenous T4, which is preferred to T3 due to its longer half-life, although combinations of intravenous T3 and T4 can be given. IV hydrocortisone should also be administered, as adrenal insufficiency may coexist during coma, and broad-spectrum antibiotics are started to treat any infectious precipitant. Treatment with dextrose may also be required to correct hypoglycemia, and fluid restriction may be necessary to treat hyponatremia. The hypothermia displayed by patients requires no intervention. That concludes Ollie and Sam's first medical podcast. We hope to bring you many more in the future, and we are working on a series of worksheets to accompany these podcasts.